We love you guys. We're so proud of you. And uh, as Neil mentioned earlier, we are a church with a calling to raise the strongest generation. So our job does not end as we launch our seniors out into the world. We're committed to walk with you as you keep following God through your 20s and through your young adult life. Well, uh, I'm really excited for what God's got for us today. And I want to start by uh, telling you about a coffee mug that I have in my office. Uh, this is one of a few that I use on my rotation. And this is actually a coffee mug. It's a picture of Walt Disney. And he's standing on the raw land that would become Disneyland. Uh, and it's about vision. It's about seeing an opportunity in a field. It's about having dreams and going big after those dreams. And I want to tell you a story you've probably never heard before about the start of Disneyland and Disney World and all of the Disney parks. Uh, in the 1940s and in the early 1950s, Walt Disney Studios was successful and everyone around the country knew about Mickey Mouse. But there was no Disneyland, there was no Disney World. And Walt Disney had this dream. I see he had grown up going to amusement parks as a kid and he had this dream uh, for a different kind of amusement park. Uh, in fact, a lot of people who lived in Burbank, California, where the studios are headquartered, they would see Walt Disney walking around vacant land, crouching down like a kid, measuring things, imagining what everything would look like from the perspective of a child. And Walt Disney, he hired architects and designers, and he spent tens of thousands of dollars designing this Disneyland park for Burbank, California. Now, if you've been to California to Disneyland, you know it's not in Burbank. It's in a neighboring city called Anaheim. Because you see what happened is after Disney invested all this time and all this effort into this dream and all this money, he had to go to the Burbank City Council to get their permission. And he went in and he had these easels and these drawings and he just poured out his heart about this dream. And it was met with complaining and criticism. In fact, one of the city councilmen said this, stood up and he looked Walt Disney in the eyes and he said, we don't want a carny, carnival atmosphere in Burbank. We don't want people falling in the river or merry-go-rounds squawking all day long. We don't want the crime and everything that comes with an amusement park, so you can't build it in Burbank. Well, it's a fascinating story because Walt Disney could have argued with them. Uh, he could have gotten so upset. And the true story is that Walt Disney quietly packed up his presentation materials. He drove home that night in the dark, and he decided that if it couldn't be in Burbank, it must be supposed to be somewhere where it can be bigger. And I just love that, because we know that the really successful people in life, they all overcome hurdles and obstacles that normal people, it would stop them, but they keep going. But I think we don't realize that a lot of times we wanna do that in our lives, but we fall into a trap of complaining. I mean, think about it. If Walt Disney had gone home, and by the way, uh, there's biographers and storytellers about the whole Disney story. There's no account of him ever complaining. He was upset. He was disappointed. But there's never an account of him speaking a negative word about that Burbank City Council. Not immediately after, not when he had to then invest tens of thousands more dollars to design it in Anaheim. Not 30 years later, when it was wildly successful, 
And the park alone was bringing in more revenue than the entire city of Burbank. He didn't go back and rub it in then. And as I heard that story, or read it rather, I was just thinking about myself. And I was thinking, you know, what would I have done? I mean, if I'm honest, would I have driven home and kind of complained, at least to my spouse or someone? I mean, I know if it was me, I would have felt like, man, these Burbank City Council people, why don't they get it? Like, I'm literally just trying to make kids happy. Why can't they get on board with this? How could they miss this opportunity? And it's so interesting that Walt Disney, for whatever reason, he had a wiring or a choice or a habit that when he would hit an obstacle, instead of spiraling into complaining, he would say, well, there must be a better way. Of course, uh, we know what Disneyland or Disney World looks like today, but did you know that on a given year, the number of people who visit Disney parks, this is not movies or theaters, this is just Disneyland, Disney World, there are other parks around the world, 156 million people every year. And to put that into perspective, the population of the U.S. is 300 million, so that's like one out of two people Globally, from the U.S. population, one out of two visiting every year. The revenue from that is $70 billion, with a B, dollars. Uh, That is actually more. I looked up the the GDP, gross domestic product, of all the 200-some countries in the world. That's more income than the majority of countries in the world. And, of course, none of it's in Burbank. (laughs) But it's interesting to think if Walt Disney had had a habit of complaining the way that some of us do where we obsess on that person who wronged us, he would have spent the rest of his life as a grumpy man in Burbank telling everyone what the city missed out on and how everything didn't go the way it could have. But instead, he had a habit to direct his energy elsewhere. There's this fascinating story about Thomas Edison. You guys know the light bulb guy, Edison Electric Company. When Thomas Edison, uh, his company was growing and he had hired all these different inventors and engineers, he had this huge factory. And one inventor made an error and started a fire and the entire factory burned to the ground. And the true story goes that as Thomas Edison was standing there watching his life work, I mean, he had everything he had in this building and he was standing there with his son and he said, we'll build it back bigger. I just love those kind of stories because we will all run into obstacles in life. And when you hit an obstacle, you're going to have a preset habit of how you respond to it. You know, as a journalist and now as a pastor, I've met people who have great health, who are financially secure, who are attractive, who really have all the ingredients for a happy life, but they're miserable because of their outlook on life, because they have a habit of complaining. On the flip side, I've met people who are in hospital beds and people who are in wheelchairs, people who've lost adult children, people who've had multiple miscarriages, people who've gone through unthinkable pain and suffering, who have a a really just positive outlook on life, and as a result, they're very happy people. You know, whether you define success as achievements like Disney or Edison, or if you define success by relationships, people who love you. In either case, the habit of complaining is a cancer on your dreams in your life. 
If you have a habit of complaining and you don't realize it and you don't deal with it, it will be like a cancer on the dreams that you have of what you want to achieve and the relationships that you want to have. Complaining is a cancer that destroys our dreams. You know, if the people who know you best, if they had to answer this question about you, I wonder what would they say? The, the people who know how you just talk when, you know, you're relaxed and you're, you're not in a public place and it's just, you're speaking your heart. Would they say, she's a person who consistently complains or she's a person who, yes, she acknowledges the difficulty in life, but she's consistently saying God's bigger, God has a plan or is consistently positive. I mean, I know this is a hard question, but I would encourage you, open your heart and just between you and God, are you a person defined by complaining or by positivity? I love this quote that it's a lot like having bad breath, complaining is. You might not notice it, but all the people around you sure do. I just want you to think about your life, you know, if, if you're a grandparent. When your kids or grandkids come over to your home and, and you're just speaking and, and think about the volume of those words and then they leave, what do they leave with? Do they leave with, man, mom and dad are just so upset about everything in the world. I mean, anything that comes up, they've got a negative take on it. Or do they leave and say, wow, you know, being with them really helped me realize God's bigger than this stuff. God's in control. Uh, think about your spouse or your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, or your closest friends. If they know that they're going to spend some time with you, can they kind of expect to hear about everyone who wronged you in the last week and everything that you're upset about this week? Or can they expect to hear about how God is at work and how even though it's hard, you believe God's got a plan? Think about this. Uh, with all your different relationships, if, if your friends know that you're going to go out to dinner with them, and they know, oh, you know, so-and-so's going to be there. Fill in your name there. So-and-so's going to be there. What can they expect because they know the habit or the pattern of your life? And there's a true story about an English preacher named John Wesley back in the 1700s. One Sunday morning after his sermon, a lady walked up to him and she said, Brother Wesley, are you open to some criticism? He said, well, I guess so. What would you like to criticize? She said, the ribbons on your tie which were, you know, a sign of wealth at the time. The ribbons on your tie are entirely too long and inappropriate for a man of God. Then the woman took out a pair of scissors and she cut his tie shorter to the length that she thought would be appropriate for a pastor. People standing nearby were shocked, but then Wesley calmly asked her, may I borrow your scissors for a moment? She handed him the scissors and he said, ma'am, uh, are you open to some criticism? <laughs> she said, well, I suppose so. He said, uh, good. Would you please stick out your tongue? <laughs> I don't worry. He didn't cut her tongue off, okay? Did you know that in 1996, Stanford researchers did MRI brain scans on people while they were complaining or being complained to? And they found that it physically damages the brain. Not a joke. 30 minutes of complaining or being complained to physically damages the brain. Quote, links between long-term stressful life experiences, long-term exposure to hormones producing, produced during stress, uh, are linked to the shrieking, shrinking of the hippocampus, 
Of course, the hippocampus is the part of your brain uh, that is affected when you have Alzheimer's. It affects your memory. It affects your mood. Complaining releases cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And cortisol raises our blood pressure. Frequent complaining can lead to heart disease, can lead to diabetes. People who complain a lot are inclined to have poor health. They don't do as well as in their jobs. That's no surprise, right? None of us like to work uh, under or with or have an employee who's constantly complaining. And, and of course, constantly complaining is a habit. Uh, it does damage to our relationships as well. And this is so hard because we live at a time where on our phone screens and our TV screens, some of the smartest people in the world are making their fortunes by learning how to manipulate us to keep returning to that screen. And one of their easiest manipulations is to trigger those cortisol chemicals, uh, those other responses of the brain. And they can do that easiest by telling you that the world's falling apart around you. If I could tell you today how to break the habit of complaining, if I could tell you today how to be completely set free from that, would you want to know how? I mean, would you want to know how you could, you know, be like a Walt Disney and when you hit an obstacle, rather than spending the next two months complaining about it and then the dream dies, that instead somehow you connect with God in a way that you leap over that obstacle? Would you want to be more like Disney in that way or more like Edison in that way or how about this, more like Jesus in that way? who was always aware that the father was at work even when people were threatening to kill him. You know, breaking this cycle of complaining unlocks your true potential as a follower of Jesus. And also, as a husband or as a wife or as a student, would you want to know how to do that? Well, I'm going to give you four steps that you can take today. And then at the very end, I'll give you a bonus plan for the next 21 days so you can break this cycle for good. What does God say about complaining? Very direct, Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining. The great verse, if you have kids, it's a good one to put on your refrigerator. It's a good one to have, uh, you know, on a road trip for sure. Do everything without complaining and without arguing. Now, if you're cynical, like I tend to be by nature, you might say, well, you know, does that actually mean everything? And God knew we would ask that question, so he had this book written, Philippians, by a guy who's in a jail cell. He's in a jail cell, wrongly accused, completely innocent. All he's done is tell the good news of Jesus, and he's imprisoned, and he's writing, and he's saying, it might seem impossible, but you can actually do everything without complaining. The passage goes on, it says this, live clean and innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. In other words, as God's children, and I, we don't mean this in the sense of just like we're all God's children. I mean, have you placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? After that, you're adopted into the family of God. That's when you can say, I'm a child of God. He's your creator either way. You become a child of God when you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And as a child of God, you're supposed to be different from the world around you. Be not conformed to the patterns or the habits of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so in a world full of complaining and criticism and cynicism, where people make fortunes off of complaining and criticism and cynicism, and where that's just the way, that's just the, how everyone lives life, 
we're supposed to be different in such a way that we shine like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. And that's actually step one to breaking our complaining habit is to realize it's not just annoying, and it is, but it's also actually evil. The words that you speak have spiritual significance because you're made in the image of God. Now, I want you to know at this point in this message that I'm as guilty as any of you at this habit of complaining. I hope you don't hear me up here and think like, oh, you know, John's like, his, his tie is this long. He thinks he's perfect, you know, and he thinks we're all complaining. I'm not like complaining that you guys are complainers. I picked this topic because I need to work on this topic. I want to work on this habit. You know, the reality at my house is if you could ever hear me assembling any piece of furniture that came with instructions, you would hear things like this. I can't believe someone got paid to design this. My kids have heard this a million times. I'll be putting something together and the directions don't make sense and, and I'll be like, I, or a product that just doesn't work. Like, it's just a faulty product. It's just a bad design. That frustrates me so much. And I'll often say, I'm like, someone designed this and went home and said, I did a good job at work today. I cannot believe this. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> and you know, if you're in your garage by yourself assembling something, that is probably not a sin to do that, okay? But where it becomes both spiritually evil and destructive to the people around us is when that bleeds over into how we talk about our kids or our neighbors or people at church because our kids are hearing it all and our spouse is hearing it all. And just like complaining can form a habit in your mind that you start to always look for the negative, you can actually start to form that habit in the people around you because you're always verbalizing the negative. You know, I've been praying for you guys this week and I really, as I was thinking and praying on complaining, I realized it's kind of one of three siblings. There's complaining, which is, uh, what is complaining? It's really just, I'm going to find the negative in anything, and I'm going to verbalize it. Gossip is the negative in the people around me, and when they're not present, I'm going to talk about what they did, or what I think they did, or what their motives were, or how they wronged me. That's what gossip is. They're related. Cynicism. Cynicism isn't always verbalized. It can be, and it becomes complaining or gossip when it's verbalized. Sometimes it's just in our mind. Cynicism is an outlook on life. This says, oh, they've got that big dream, but it's not going to happen, right? The Burbank City Council guy for Walt Disney. You can't do this. You can't do this in our city. And as you follow God and you see people going all out to follow God, sometimes cynicism says, like, oh, well, you know, who do they think they are? And really what all three of these have in common is godless thinking. By godless thinking, I don't mean that you have to be an atheist to think this way. I mean that when you're thinking about that person, you're not thinking about God in the situation. You're just thinking about the person, and that's why you're gossiping, because you're not realizing God can handle that person. God's the judge. God will deal with this. Complaining is talking in a way that assumes God's not actually in control of the universe or the United States or whatever's concerning me. Cynicism is saying, you know, God couldn't possibly bring good out of this. Godless thinking is the assumption of all of these. Now, I'm going to step away from the Bible for a moment because we're here always to teach the word of God. I'm going to briefly just give you my opinion about something, okay? This isn't the Bible. This is John. As a pastor, I've pastored in different regions of the country. 
And I'm of the belief that there are almost like regional sin strongholds in different parts of the country. Las Vegas would be a great example of this. In Las Vegas, there is a, a sin stronghold of lust. Uh, when I lived in Silicon Valley, where Facebook and Apple and Google are headquartered, you might think it's making money as the stronghold. That's part of it. But it's really uh, how smart are you? How hard do you work? It's pride. And that's just the culture there. In fact, there, you don't find a lot of people gossiping because they're all too busy making money and succeeding and winning at life. They've got their own vice. Well, let me just suggest in a loving way that in the Midwest, truly, in the Midwest, while we're all at our kids' sports events, we are a word-of-mouth culture, right? Someone in Silicon Valley or Las Vegas, they're going to yelp the restaurant. Here, you're going to talk to your neighbors. What's a good restaurant? That's part of the culture. That's not bad. But that culture really gives a big opening that if we're not being Christ-like, we can become gossipers. Or we can become complainers. And so it's just on my heart. You know, this book, Creatures of Habit, that we're studying here in June. I read it back in February when we planned out this series. And I was so, I don't want to say encouraged by it, but like, you guys know that feeling when you go to the dentist and you get your teeth cleaned and you don't love it, but then after you're driving home and you kind of rub your tongue over your teeth and you're like, wow, my teeth are really a lot cleaner. I didn't realize how dirty they were. That's what this book is like, and I, I, I've reread it this week. And I just want to encourage you, if you don't yet have a copy, to pick one up in the lobby, or if you're watching online, text the word habit to us, we'll get one to you. And here's what I want to encourage you. Would you read this book with a heart that says this? This has been my prayer this last week, and God's been answering it. God, would you clean house in my heart? Just like I do a spring clean of my garage and get all the leaves out of there and everything, like God... I want you to clean house in my heart. It might be a little uncomfortable, but it's going to be better when you're done. Uh, in this book, complaining is one of the chapters. Uh, anger last week was one of the chapters. For me, every single one of these chapters has been like a great teeth cleaning. And I just feel more connected to God as I'm saying, would you clean house in my heart? And that's why I picked this topic of complaining for our uh, my, message, my first message in this series. Well, real quick, here's six reasons why you should really assess your heart right now. If you're feeling like, oh, okay, John, my wife needs this, but not me. Or someone I know needs this, and believe me, I'm going to send them the link, but you're not talking to me. I know. If you're feeling that way, let me just encourage you on this. Open your heart right now and say, God, even if it's, even maybe this isn't your worst bad habit, it's just a small one. We can all grow in this area. Six real quick reasons why you should grow in this area. It does directly disobey God. Secondly, it destroys our Christian witness. And I've seen this over and over again. That there are believers who are like, yeah, I want to invite my neighbor to church. And it's like, if I was your neighbor, I would not come. Because every time you talk to them, it's about some terrible negative thing or someone who wronged you. It destroys our witness. Also, it makes us miserable. That's a good enough reason by itself. Destroys our health, as we saw. It discourages and hurts the people we love. If you're a mom or dad and you've fallen into the habit of constantly complaining, which, by the way, a lot of us were raised in environments that did that, you don't even realize how much you're discouraging and hurting the people in your house. It also invites Satan to destroy. Ephesians chapter 4 unpacks that. And then sixth, creates a feedback loop. Your brain is a pattern machine. 
That's why, you know, we learned in this series, 40% of what you do in a day, you do without thinking. Because it's a pattern, right? When you go to tie your shoes now, you're not like, wait, now is it bunny over the foot? Right? It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pattern. It's a habit. And, and so what happens is if you start to get into any kind of habit, it starts to become a reinforcing feedback loop. And now when a situation happens, you're looking for the negative rather than looking for the positive, And it reinforces the habit. Well, let me give you step two today. Replace your destructive words with words that build up. Because all six of those things we just looked at, you can flip all those. You can obey God. You can be a great witness. You can build up the people in your home all by changing that habit. And here's what you're going to learn. With any negative habit in your life, if you just try to get rid of the bad, that's a good start. But you got to replace it with the good or else the bad will grow right back. It's just like weeding in a garden. You've got to replace it with words that actually build up. I want you to uh, imagine with me one of these brand new homes going up. You've seen them, uh, some of the really nice homes with, you know, kind of the the wood siding, and you've seen these really nice homes going up all around the area here. I just want you to imagine a young couple with a few kids, and they've just been saving up and saving up because they wanted to upgrade to one of these homes. And they've been saving up, and they've been sacrificing, and then they finally move in. And one day you drive by, and you see the moving truck, and you see them, you know, hauling in different pieces of furniture, and the family moves in, and they kind of set up the play stuff in the backyard for the kids. It's like, wow, what a beautiful young family in a beautiful home. And I want you to imagine that then one day you drive by, and the mom is out there. She's got a full-size axe like you would use to cut down a tree. And she's just hacking at the side of the house. Wood chips are flying. She goes for one of the beams that holds up the porch. And after a few hits, parts of the porch start to fall down. Proverbs 14.1 says this. The wise woman builds her house. But with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. What's the foolish one according to Proverbs 14? The one who has no control of their mouth. What's the wise one? The one who realizes my words have the power of life and death, and I'm going to use them intentionally. You know, in Genesis, when God created, he spoke. And then he created mankind, man and woman, in his image. And one of the things that differentiates us from the animals is our ability to speak. Speaking is spiritual in its origin, and in its implications. Speaking is deeply spiritual. Uh, Think about this, complaining, criticism, cynicism. Where did sin come from? Sometimes we look at cancer and divorce and death and brokenness and war in the world. We say, if God's good, why is there sin? And we know from Genesis 1 through 3 that sin is here because of Satan, a fallen angel. We always say, well, well, where did sin start in Satan's heart? And the, the short answer is typically pride. But think about this. Why would Satan have a rebellion in heaven and try to overthrow God? That must have involved a little bit of complaining to the other angels, criticism, and gossip. And if you don't agree with me yet, think of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, they are in perfect bodies that will never get sick. They have all the food supply they'll ever need for their life. Uh, They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're smart. I mean, everything's perfect. And Satan slithers in. And with his little forked tongue, he starts to whisper into Eve's ear. And what does he whisper? 
can you really trust God? I mean, what do you think his motives actually are even? It's cynicism. Eve, I think God's holding out on you. Gossip. Eve, you realize there's things God knows, the knowledge of good and evil. You don't even have the knowledge of evil, Eve. God's holding out on you. Complaining, gossip, cynicism are the original sins in a sense. And they're still with us today. And I just want to suggest to you that there is a spiritual nature to those sins. And that as creatures made in the image of God, our words are are far more spiritual than we may realize. This is why God tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. You know what corrupting is? That's like when you see a a 10-year-old pickup truck that still looks like it's brand new, but all by the back wheels, there's like two feet of rust. Like what in the world is going on there? That truck looks great, except that there's this huge patch of rust. It's being corrupted by rust. And our words can just slowly eat away at the people around us. And God says, in love, by the way, don't let words come out of your mouth that are going to corrupt the people around you. Just, just choose. I'm not going to do that. Now, as always, here and in the word of God, our standard is not perfection. It's not like we leave here today. It's like, well, if you ever let one corrupting word come out of your mouth, you're never allowed back at connection point. You know, we're all sinners. We're all saved by grace. We get into heaven, not because we never say a corrupting word, but because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But that said, we are now children of God, and this is the standard to which he calls us in love so that we don't have the cancer of complaining, rotting away our own dreams and the well-being of the people we love and the church that we love. You know, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, John, I agree, but you know, it just feels so good. It does, right? Which, like, it just feels so good to just, when someone has wronged me or I'm upset, to just, I just got to get it out. I'm a verbal processor. I've got to get it out. Now, I'm going to give a kind of crass example. Bear with me, okay? You know when you really have to go to the bathroom and you got to get it out? And you're holding it and, it, and you know, you finally have that relief? I mean, think about this. The difference between a baby who wears diapers because they don't know when to relieve themselves, and a mature adult, the difference is knowing when and where to relieve yourself. I know, I know, I maybe crossed a line there, okay? But just think about this. That's what maturity is, knowing when and how to relieve yourself. That's what growing up is. So absolutely, you know, what I've learned to do is write, these, write my complaints out. Get the words out. Write them out. And then give them to God. And then crumple it up and throw it in the trash. And if it's about your spouse, burn it. Because <laughs> they might read your trash. <laughs> but, but the point is this. Just, you know, with any of these habits, they will be a struggle for us until we get to heaven. But we are new creations. We have power to do the right thing. But if we don't wake up and say, my goal is no corrupting talk. My goal is zero. If we don't make that our goal, then of course we're going to fall into the habit of complaining. I love this. Remember, step two, replace the bad. So it's not just don't ever do any corrupting talk. Here's the solution. Replace it, the verse continues, with speech that is good for building up. So God says, if you, any bad habit you want to replace, there's an opposite good habit. 
right? The opposite of complaining would be gratitude. Uh, the opposite of anger would be uh, peace or trust in God. There's an opposite for every one of these. So intentionally say, God, I want to speak in a way that builds up the people around me. I want to speak in a way that fits the occasion. I want to speak in a way that gives grace to those who hear. I love the book of Psalms where it says, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. God, I, I want to love the people around me. And so that's why I want to be aware of what I'm saying. Now, maybe you say, John, I've tried all these things and I'm in agreement with you, but it's just not that easy for me. If you're feeling that way, I want to encourage you. You're having an insight right now. If you say, John, I've tried all this and it hasn't worked, then truly this is a habit for you. And that's a really valuable insight to know this is a habit for me. That's huge for you to know. This isn't just like a little thing that I kind of need to, you know, brush off. This is a habit, a deeply entrenched habit. And it took you years to form that habit. And so it's going to take a lot of intentionality to break it. And you might just think, John, I've tried that before, but it doesn't work. Well, that's what step three is. Get to the heart of it. Asking God to change your heart. I've been taking inventory of myself this last week as I've studied this. A lot of times at home when I'm complaining, you know what's in my heart? Entitled pride. I deserve better. Uh, there's a heart under every complaint. Now, the beauty of the work of Jesus on the cross and the good news of salvation by grace is that God accepts us as we are, and if we'll humble ourselves, he actually changes our hearts. So if you'll acknowledge this as a habit and ask God to change your heart, this could be a great spiritual breakthrough for you. I want you to think about one of these cornfields out here in Indiana. And I want you to think about after uh, winter, right before the planting of the crops, and usually a lot of those fields uh, weeds have started to grow up in them. And of course, the farmers, they go through with their huge tractors and they get rid of all those weeds and then they plant in the seeds of what they want to grow there. That's how you do it. Now, how silly would it be if there was a farmer and he said, you know, I, I think I've got a different approach to this. It's a lot of work to pull up all the weeds. I'm going to buy a bunch of corn. I'm going to get a glue gun. And I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to glue corn onto the weeds. I mean, why uproot the weeds? And that, that is what we do as followers of Jesus when we just try to change the behavior without changing the heart. If we want to change the behavior on any of these habits, we've always got to get to the root. And we've got to find, God, what's my root of pride, entitlement? You know what I've realized this week? I don't love other people around me nearly as much as I think I do. I love myself a lot more than I think I do. I got to get all the way under that root. I got to pull that thing up. And I got to say, God, would you plant in my heart a seed that loves the people around me more than loving me being comfortable? That will address a lot of my complaining. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Jesus said this in Luke 6, a good person produces good things. He's talking about speech from the treasury of a good heart. In other words, your words are the fruit of the roots in your heart. An evil person is going to say evil things from the treasury of evil that's in their heart. For what you say flows from what is in your heart. The, the heart leads the mouth to speak. So let's look back at this diagram of these three cousins or siblings complaining gossip cynicism all rooted out of godless thinking. 
right? Something is uncomfortable or bad in my life, and I'm just not thinking about God being in it. Now, here's the positive flip side of that. The same bad thing thing happens in my life, and I replace it with godly thinking. Now, with godly thinking, I can be grateful where I would be complaining. I met a woman last week who's going through a severe medical uh, crisis in her life. Hasn't been to church in a long time because of it. And it's one of those where the doctors don't have an easy solution. And she said, John, I'm just, I'm choosing to focus on the positive. My legs are in pain, but at least I have legs. Like, that's it. That's godly thinking, right? She could be complaining, but she says, God's still in this. And I still have legs. There's people who don't. That comes from seeing that God's in it. Building others up says, man, boy, that person, they either hurt me or they wrong me, whatever else. God how can I be praying for them? How can I be helping them? Same with assuming the best rather than being cynical. Philippians 4 verse 8, same book written from the jail cell. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts on what is true, on what is honorable, on what is right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent. This has always been a challenge for Believers in every generation. But I do believe it is a harder challenge now because we have thoughts coming in through our phones and our TVs, just a nonstop flood, and most of them aren't true, aren't honorable, aren't right or pure or lovely. And so this fixing of our thoughts takes more self-discipline and self-control, more willpower than perhaps ever before. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, John, I'm motivated but how do you handle the actual grievances and injustices? You know, I mean, writing it on a piece of paper or in a room by myself, throwing it in a trash can, good. But sometimes things are just so, they're so broken in the world. And I do want to say this, you know, being an encouraging person and a, a biblically positive person doesn't mean that you don't deal with conflict. Doesn't mean that you don't have hard conversations. But before you do that, I want to encourage you to take step four. When all else fails... Let the complaints fly to God. Let the complaints fly to God. You know, during the pandemic, when it was kind of at its peak, and, um, you know, there was so much concern about the virus, and we were wearing masks everywhere, and it was, this was November or December. I just remember it was freezing cold outside, and it was snowing, and I had placed an order at an area Chipotle for a chicken burrito. And I got there, and I went in, and I got my burrito, and I got out to my car, and I opened it up, and it was missing the guacamole. Guacamole is a $2.25 upcharge at Chipotle. So I marched back inside, and I said, hey, uh, this burrito does not have guacamole, and I paid for it. The manager said, well, I need to see your receipt. You mean I don't have a receipt? I bought it online. He's like, well, show me on your phone. My phone's out in my car. It's freezing cold out there. I've got the mask, the gloves, everything, and just put the guacamole on there. He's like, no. No receipt, no guacamole. You can imagine I was a little frustrated. <laughs> Marched out to my car. I was like, forget it. I'm just leaving. I get to the edge of the parking lot, and the other side of my brain says, whoa, 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 whoa. You paid $2.25 for that guacamole. <laughs> You are getting your guacamole. Turn around, grab my phone, I go in, and I show him. Guacamole. 
There it is. Sure enough, he gave me the guacamole then. Now, imagine that I had just spent my time in the lobby of the restaurant and everyone who came in, I said, you guys are not going to believe this. I paid for the guacamole. They won't, get, they won't give it to me. I could have spent the whole day complaining to every other customer and it wouldn't have changed my situation. I had to complain to the person who actually controlled the guacamole scooper. Right? Do you get the parallel? You can spend your life complaining to all the humans around you. They don't have the guacamole scooper. Take your complaints. Complain a lot more is the solution to the one who can actually do something about it. This is why I love the Psalms. Because they're complaints. Look at Psalm chapter 10. Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? You will find if you start to read the Psalms, not just one or two, but dozens of them are complaints taken directly to the manager of the universe. Complaints to God. And the theme of the Psalms, and sometimes it's 12 verses, sometimes it's 30 verses, is the person, they get it all out. God, I feel like the world's against me. I feel like you're not there. But then they say, but God, I choose to trust that you're good. I trust your nature. And by the end of every one of these complaining psalms, the conclusion is, God, you're bigger. I'll give you just a few examples. Psalm 3, how many are my foes? Psalm 4, give me relief from my distress. Psalm 5, not a word from these people's mouths can be trusted. Psalm 6, away from me, you who do evil. Psalm 10, God, why are you so far off? Psalm 7, Lord, I'm falsely accused of evil. People are making stories up about me. Psalm 13, will you forget me forever, God? And there's a bunch more if you want to take a picture with your phone or if you want to screenshot this later. Every psalm of complaint has a turning point to the conclusion that, God, you're bigger and you're in control. So please don't hear from this message, uh, you can never have a negative thought or you're not a good Christian. You will have trouble in this world. When you do, take it to God. And the more you take it to God, the more he can change your heart and the less you'll have a compulsion to complain around you. But you'll also know when you have that compulsion, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Do everything without complaining. I better go back to God again. I want to just show you a picture of a brother in my life who has been a model to me of the opposite of complaining. I think most of us probably know or have had a, a, you know, at some point in our lives, a boss or a coach or someone who just constantly complained, and we know what it feels like to be dragged down by that. I want to end with a positive example of the opposite. This is uh, Tom and his wife, Deb. Uh, Tom met me when I was a teaching pastor in California. He kind of knew I was coming into a, a different culture and a difficult environment in some ways, and he just reached out to me right away. And, and Tom has walked with me through a number of battles. And I've walked with him and his wife through a uh, chronic illness that is undiagnosed for his wife, colon cancer for him this last year, um, misunderstandings among people who are trying to change the world for Jesus, all sorts of difficulties. I've never once heard him, never once heard him say a negative word about any other person. It's remarkable. And I don't say that in a shaming way, but I say it to say this, the impact of Tom on my life has been to encourage me, the result of just being his friend, to be a lot more like Walt Disney was at the beginning, 
when my nature is to be like the Burbank City Council guy and be very cynical. I mean, that is my nature. But it's through the discipleship of a godly brother that God has helped me to see, man, the way I talk and think, I've got to take every thought captive. And especially the ones that come out of my mouth because they affect the people around me. I wonder, are you being a Tom to anyone in your life? Are you just even saying, God, I want my impact on my kids or my grandkids or my coworkers to be one that builds them up rather than tears them down? Are you even aspiring to that? And I know your guys' hearts. You guys love people so much. So I know this is what you want to do. And I want to encourage you to join me in just saying, God, clean house in my heart. And if there's any of these habits in my life, would you clean them up? Well, uh, if God's speaking to you today and you feel like, yeah, this is a pretty deep-rooted habit. Maybe it's in your family system or it goes back years. I'm, just, I'm not going to unpack these, but I'll just give you these five things. You can take a picture with your phone or you can look at it later online. Tell some of your closest friends that you want to change this habit. That is huge with changing any habit because when you set out to change a habit, you'll do real well for the first few days and then about 14 days later, you'll have forgotten if you're average. If you tell your friends, they're going to remind you. Tell the people who live in your house, believe me, they'll hold you accountable to this one. They'll be like, hey, weren't you going to work on complaining? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was. Second, begin complaining to God instead of people. If you've never journaled before, it's a great way. I mean, you can get in your car and close the door and, you know, yell it out if you want. But a journal's a great way to harness those thoughts. Take the 21-day bracelet challenge. That's something that is unpacked in the book Creatures of Habit. So we've got that book in the lobby. Uh, if the cost of it is an issue for you, we'll give it to you because we want uh, you to grow in these ways. And then fifth, seek out positive believers. You know, we all become like the people we're around. And so if all my closest friends are um, enslaved to the habit of complaining, I'm going to have a hard time getting out of it. So you want to seek out some believers who, again, none of us are perfect, but who are looking for how God is at work in the world. Well, uh, would you guys stand with me? I just want to pray this over you. Father, Lord, I think of the story of Job and how Satan came to you in heaven and complained and criticized and gossiped about Job. We know that Satan is the accuser of your people. And we know that really this whole broken world began with him complaining and gossiping, criticizing. Jesus, we thank you that you stand as a polar opposite of perfection. That we're told in Hebrews chapter 7 that you ever live to make intercession for us. In other words, every time Satan comes to you and says, do you see John? He's complaining again. Jesus, you're there to say, but my blood is paid for that. Jesus, we want to be more like you. You know the roots underneath our complaining. Some of them are legitimate fears, insecurities. Lord, all those roots, we know that you can change. Would you just create in us a clean heart, oh God? Make us more like you, Lord. May the words of our mouths, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, oh God, our redeemer, the one who can uproot the old and plant the new. And so, Lord, I just pray over every home represented here, over every marriage represented here, over every classroom and every workplace represented here, Lord, would you make us children of God who shine like bright lights in a world of crooked and perverse people? And Lord, would our words be the fruit of your spirit? 
because our hearts have been made new. And when life's not fair, we've complained to you. Make us this way, Lord. We know the implications are life-changing for the people around us. We long for this. Do this work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.